All right, so one of my heroes is a man that I've never met, and his name is Brian Stevenson. Yes, he is a profound individual. He's a lawyer and an author, among many other things, and uh, he started an, an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. Among other things, what they do is they seek to get people free who were wrongly convicted. And since the organization started in the 80s, uh, they've worked and freed over 2,500 people uh, who were in prison, usually between eight and 10 years there for a crime that they did not commit. Many of those people were on death row. I love uh, scenes of people who are freed from prison for something that they didn't commit, and they walk out onto the steps of the courthouse. And this time, they're not surrounded by prison guards. They're not surrounded by lawyers. They're not surrounded by court officers. They're surrounded by family. The look on their face is one that a picture truly does tell a thousand words. It's this look of freedom this joy, this appreciation for what they are now experiencing. Uh, they did a movie about Brian Stevenson called uh, Just Mercy a couple of uh, months ago, and if you haven't seen it, you should definitely see it. Um, and it came out and uh, Michael B. Jordan played uh, Brian Stevenson. Side note, if they ever do a movie about my life, <laughs> I'm not picky, I'm not picky. It's Michael B. Jordan, Idris Elba, whoever's available. <laughs> Whoever's available for the role, let's, let's fill them in. In the movie, they talked about this guy, Walter McMillan, um, and, and he experienced this freedom. Freedom, uh, the, probably the best definition of it, is the state of having been released from confinement for a life of enjoyment and satisfaction that was not possible before. Now, freedom is a really interesting concept because correctly understood, it's not just that you are released from something. It's always two parts. You are freed from something so you can be free to do something else. You're free from confinement so that, uh, Walter McMillan was freed from confinement so that he could be free to enjoy his life and his family without restriction. Now, everybody wants freedom. All of us want to experience a freedom from the things that hold us in place, and a freedom to enjoy our lives and to enjoy a relationship uh, with God in a real way. But there's a couple of things that, about my life that are true that might also be true about you, that even though I understand what Jesus offers us, and even though I, I've read books, I, I've been to seminary, I know concepts about God, I just don't always feel free. Sometimes I just feel stuck. I, I can't fully explain it, but I have goals for my life, and I just kind of feel like by this point in my life, things should be better than what I thought they would be. Like, I should have a better prayer life now than I do. The worst part about feeling stuck is you don't even know how to move forward. You feel stuck, maybe it's in your relationships, where you just don't know how to fix it. Maybe you feel stuck financially, where you tried a bunch of different things, and you just can't move forward. Feeling stuck is the opposite of freedom, that... You feel bound to something, and you're not feeling free to really enjoy life as God has intended it. With your spiritual life, there's so many of us in here that I know feel stuck. Uh, you don't feel like you can truly enjoy all the things that God has promised. Sometimes it's not that you're stuck. Sometimes in, in our lives, it's just this nagging sense of guilt 
that prevents us from truly feeling free. I don't have to explain what guilt feels like. You know what it feels like. Guilt is that feeling that something is, that God is out to get you. That God is noticing all the bad things that you're doing. And even though you might understand theologically that this is not true, it just kind of feels like there are angels in heaven piling up the good stuff that you're doing on one side. And there are devils, demons trying to throw the bad stuff on the other side of the scale. And you're just hoping that you end up in the right balance. And you understand theological concepts about what Jesus has done to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sins from you, but you, you don't really believe that. You know it, but it hasn't really made its, its root in your life, and you just feel guilty all the time, and there's no real freedom in that. Sometimes it's not because you're stuck. Sometimes it's not because you feel guilty. Other times, it's just that you just, you just can't relax. You just can't like feel at home with God. That you've read scriptures, you've heard stories about how God wants to make you his child and God invites us into a relationship with him that, that is the same as a parent to a child and you, you know the facts, you've heard the stories, but it just doesn't feel like you can truly relax. You still feel like an outsider. Uh, every, every summer my family and I go to Virginia for my family reunion and before we go there we make a quick stop in North Carolina to spend time with some family. And we have some of the most hospitable family on the planet. True story, last year, uh, as soon as we got off the plane, one, there's no such thing as catching an Uber. They are going to pick you up from the airport. Uh, as soon as we got to the house, there was an apple pie that was just there waiting for us. They were like, we knew you were coming, we baked two. One for now and one for later. And we ate like a half of an apple pie in one sitting for lunch. It was pretty glorious. Uh, they tell you, as soon as you get there, make yourself at home, and they mean it. But even though they said that, I still knew that this wasn't our crib. Like, if it's really our house, then our one-year-old is going to draw on your walls with a, <laughs> a marker that's a permanent marker, and that's not going to be good. Like, if it's really our home, then our, our four-and-a-half-year-old is going to start breaking some doors and some different things. And even though we were welcomed in with all of the intensity of a nice, freshly baked apple pie and smiles and hugs, I still knew that I was an outsider. For a lot of us, we live with this suspicion that God has truly not welcomed us into his house. And you feel like God is inviting, you feel like God is polite, and God is kind, but you don't really truly feel like you are his child. So there's no freedom in your life. Fortunately for us, Jesus, the most profound human to ever walk this planet, uh, has given us what freedom truly looks like in our lives. He's given us a path for how we can truly understand and experience a life where we are not just understanding freedom intellectually, but that we are living in it, and that our spiritual journeys would be characterized by a real freedom. It's election season, and there's a lot of depressing things to, uh, to think about. Um, so a couple of days, I was just thinking about some good and happy memories. Uh, in 2008, I remember when uh, Obama was elected, and I remember just the thought of Sasha and Malia having the free reign of the White House to do whatever they wanted to do. And they could do things in the White House that would have gotten me and you shot. Like they could just get up at three in the morning, go to Barack and Michelle's room, and just wake them up. And nobody would stop them. Why is that? They were truly free. No restrictions to enjoy their parents exactly how they wanted. Who can walk into the room of a king at 3 o'clock in the morning and just ask them for a glass of milk? A child. 
What God is offering us, what Jesus promises us, is not this relationship with him that's plagued by guilt, always feeling stuck, never feeling like you can relax, but it's something that is much more life-giving than that. We're in the Gospel of John, and we've been looking at different scriptures for the last number of months. And today we're in John 8, uh, and uh, we're looking at what Jesus says about freedom. And what Jesus offers us about freedom is not you having more willpower. Most of us understand this concept, and we say, we're going to just work harder this time. We're going to get more disciplined. We're going to have more mentors in our life. We're going to have different people who speak different things to us. And although those things are helpful, relying on your willpower to experience true biblical freedom is not going to get you there. It's never worked before, and it's not going to start working now. Here's what Jesus says about freedom. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free, Jesus responded. Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then, you do what you have heard from your Father. Now, here's what Jesus is getting at. Uh, real freedom does not happen with more willpower. Uh, real freedom happens when we encounter and when we continue in the truth. Not just a truth that we hear in our heads, but a truth that is applied to our, our lives. Now, in verses 30 and 32, let's unpack what Jesus is talking about here. Um, 30, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, let me stop there for a quick second. A lot of times when you read the Bible, you'll see, especially in the New Testament, that Jesus is talking to different groups of people. One of these groups of people are the Pharisees, and they were always trying to catch Jesus in a lie or trying to trick him or trap him in something. This time, Jesus is not talking to people trying to trick him or trap him. He's talking to people who believe in him. He's talking to people who believe in him, and Jesus is inviting them on this journey about what freedom looks like. And then it says, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Jesus draws a distinction here between merely believing in what he says intellectually and then continuing in his word, putting his words into practice in our lives. That's what makes us disciples. Not knowing a fact about Jesus, but taking those facts about Jesus and incorporating those things into our lives, that's what truly makes us disciples. It's not just truth, it is truth applied to our lives, and the Holy Spirit does that for us. It says, you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. Now, here's what Jesus is getting at. He's uh, drawing a clear distinction. Not everybody that believed in him were depending on him. And Jesus says that real freedom happens when we not just believe in him intellectually, but we really depend on him. So we enjoy freedom, number one, when we depend on truth. Uh, my dad grew up in Buffalo, and up until a few years ago, before my uh, grandmother passed away, uh, she lived in Buffalo for the majority of her life. And um, we used to go a couple times a year, and I always loved it. My grandmother was the best cook on the planet, and it was a great time. But Buffalo is not exactly the tourist heaven of America. But there is one site in Buffalo that is absolutely incredible, Niagara Falls. 
Now, even though the Canadian side is better than the American side, uh, Niagara Falls is one of those places that no matter how many times you go, like it just makes your heart beat fast every single time. The feeling of walking too close to the edge and hear the rush of the water, the roaring of the waterfall, and just to see the drop down hundreds and hundreds of feet, it makes you just feel so small and insignificant. And it is a remarkable place to visit. It's crazy because years ago, uh, people would actually walk across Niagara Falls. There's one man who was very famous in the 1850s for walking across Niagara Falls, and he would put on a show that newspapers would write about, and he was world famous for this uh, uh, act that he would do, and he would walk across Niagara Falls with one of these balance beams, and he would walk and walk, and one day he walked across Niagara Falls, and everybody was cheering, and he says, pulls out his, uh, uh, his prop for his next trick, he says, hey, who here thinks that I could walk back across Niagara Falls? Everybody's cheering like, we believe, and he says, who believes that I could do it with this wheelbarrow? Everybody's like, we believe. He says, who believes that I can do it with someone in the wheelbarrow? And so we believe. And he says, all right, great. Get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> and he was like, I don't believe that much. <laughs> a lot of us are, are guilty in a lot of areas in our life of saying, God, we believe. We believe. But what Jesus calls us to do is to get into the wheelbarrow. We're not going to be able to experience the freedom that Jesus offers outside of the wheelbarrow. We want to stay on land where it's nice and safe and dry and free of us being able to fall off to our death from a 700 feet drop. Jesus is, is good. Jesus is better than good. But he ain't safe. Jesus is not the friend that is predictable in your life. We all have those friends where you're like, I didn't invite homeboy because I didn't know what he was going to say when he got here. Jesus is that one. We, we can't pin him down. And because we can't pin him down, we can't control him. It's scary. We don't know what Jesus is going to do, but Jesus invites you and I, not just to believe in him intellectually, but to say, Jesus, I'm going to depend on you in such a way that I'm going to get into the wheelbarrow. And one false step by you means that we both go down. The way that we experience freedom in life is not learning more information. It's that that information is something that we now depend on. We put it into practice. Jesus tells a parable um, about different people who are building a houses. And he says, if you put my words into practice, you are like the person who builds their house on a rock, not on sand. So the first way that we see in the scripture is that Jesus calls us to get into the wheelbarrow uh, of life to depend on him. Now, the second thing we see in this text, which is really profound, is that Jesus is not just calling us to depend on truth once. He's calling us to continue in truth. Here's what Jesus says in verse 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What Jesus is saying is that freedom is not a one-time event that happens because on last Tuesday, you placed your faith and your dependence on him. Jesus is saying the life of a disciple, the life of a follower of his is continuing to wrestle with truth, continuing to put truth, God's words, into action in our lives. And eventually, that truth will lead us to freedom. One of the challenges is our modern culture doesn't really have the patience that discipleship requires. Uh, if you were to live in, be in this room 800 years ago, the most expensive thing in here would not be your amazing uh, engagement diamond ring. Uh, the most expensive thing in this room would be a Bible. 
if you were to adjust the cost for inflation, carry the one, uh, a Bible was worth about the same price as a Ferrari. Well, this was before the modern printing press where it took some guy who was a scribe and it would take him two or three years to carefully write a Bible. And only kings and queens and royalty had enough money to have a, a Bible. Now they're in hotel drawers collecting dust all over the place because now we have a modern printing press. We can print 40,000 pages a minute uh, now. Change in our lives now is something that we can't really truly fathom because we approach our spiritual lives the same way we approach the printing press. The Industrial Revolution has given us many gifts. It's given us the ability to mass produce car doors and books and phones at rapid paces. But somehow, we've now applied that change in our life should happen that way as well. When Jesus speaks about your life and your change and your growth, he never speaks about it in mechanical terms, but in organic terms. It's not mechanical that you would, you know, get on the printing press and 10 seconds later things will be uh, automatically done, but rather in organic, in farming, in agriculture. Jesus says this in Matthew 13, when he's talking about our spiritual lives and the kingdom of God in our lives, and he says, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky can come and nest in its branches. God's work inside of you happens agriculturally in the same way that a seed is planted. And when planted, it's buried underground. And for a period of time, it looks like nothing is happening. But eventually, that tree grows and it matures, but it does not happen overnight. One of the biggest enemies to your spiritual life and development is expecting something to happen immediately. That was never what Jesus intended. Jesus calls us to continue in his word, continuing to water his word in our lives, because he knows that change in our lives does not and should not happen immediately. Now, sometimes God in our lives uh, answers a prayer, and there are periods in life where things feel faster than, than normal. But that is certainly an exception, not the norm. People have spent years and years and years walking with Jesus, and there's still chronic areas of underdevelopment. There were disciples who walked with Jesus every single day for three years. They ate with him. They, ate, they slept in the same room as him. They heard his teachings all day, every day in their life. And at the end of those three years, they were still massively underdeveloped in their lives. Many of them ran away from the faith for brief periods of time. They didn't understand Jesus. They had the wrong motivations. They were just still messed up. And what did that show us about the nature of Jesus? That if you were to call me right now and say, hey, you know what? I got an internship with Jesus. And for the next three years, I'm going to spend every single day with him. At the end of those three years, there would still be massive holes in your life and your development. Change happens slowly. And we have to continue in Jesus' in God's words for our lives. Here's some things about growing a plant uh, and the organic nature of our growth. You never plant and reap in the same season. Things take time to develop. It takes time for those things to appear in your life. There's a lot of invisible, under-the-surface transformation happening before you can see visible fruit. Once you can see fruit, it takes time for that fruit to mature. I was in community group a couple years ago, and one of my friends talked about growing up in an apple, near an apple orchard, and he said it would take about five years after a tree was matured and producing fruit for you to be able to eat any of those apples. It takes years for the tree to get big enough to even grow apples, and even once it can, Five more years of growing apples that are inedible, that are not mature. This is the nature of our spiritual growth. It takes time 
for us to develop. It takes time for us to be set free. And too many of us give up on God's words. We give up on truth. We give up on things because we don't feel it happening immediately. And if you leave here with nothing else, be patient. Jesus calls us and is inviting us to continue in his words. So what does this look like practically? Uh, There's an author and a thinker named Benjamin Bloom, and he talks about this transformation process. And it's not an exact thing, but it's one of the most helpful tools that I've been able to understand on how you and I continue in God's words and how truth makes its way into our lives and actually leads us to eventual freedom. And he gives us these five stages of transformation. Uh, And the first one is awareness. Awareness is when you simply just know what something is. Um, It's not that it's, you know, revolutionized your life yet, but you just, you know what something is. The second stage is curiosity. And this is when we start to think about how does that truth that I just heard, like how does that make its way into my life? What does that, what does that do? What does that mean for me? The third is valuing, where you start to value something. This is where you start to uh, put your, your faith in action and you start to take small steps in the direction of the truth that you have heard. Uh, You're putting your faith into action. You're not just listening to it. Now you're starting to act on it. The fourth stage is prioritizing. And prioritizing is where now you're not just dabbling around here and there, but you are um, starting to make some really significant changes in your life around this truth. And the last one is owning. And owning is where you now, uh, where something is deeply embedded in your life, and now you orient everything in your life around this one truth. Now let me explain my last 20 years as a Christian and how the gospel, for example, has gone from awareness to curiosity, to valuing, to prioritizing, to owning, to now, even though I still fall short many times, it impacts everything uh, about me and everything that I do. So awareness is when I first heard the message of Jesus in a real way in my life, and I started to hear this concept that Jesus has truly removed my sins from me, that not because of anything that I've done, but because of his great love and mercy for me, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, that was a brilliant truth, but when I first became a Christian, my faith journey, I was on a sin prevention plan. I just felt like God was always angry at me, and he would be less angry at me if I didn't sin. I can spend an hour unpacking how I got to that understanding, but I couldn't have explained that theologically. It was just what I felt emotionally in my life. I was not free at all. I was plagued by constant and rampant fear. My relationship with God was not freedom. It was not me coming to God as a child. It was I was afraid to mess up. So I hear this truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for me, and that he has removed my sin. He now invites me into a life-giving relationship with God where God calls me his own child, and I can call God Abba, Father. In the tenderest of ways, I can call God Abba, Father. And it went from just awareness where I heard that fact, but I was still plagued with fear. One good sermon is not going to do it. Then I went to curiosity where I started to read different books and I started to have different conversations about if this is true, then how does this make its way into my life? And it started to change the way I prayed that if I'm God's child, then I don't need to start my prayers with, God, I'm so sorry for this, 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 because that just wasn't the nature of what freedom looks like. Uh, To be a child is something much bigger and better than constantly living in fear of of getting caught. Fear does something to us. Fear maligns and it, it maligns our relationship with God. It makes us just carry this, this guilt around all the time, and it's never a good feeling. You're never truly free. Uh, when I was growing up, we had a family tradition of going to the hibachi steakhouse 
every year for every single birthday, and um, you can time our birthdays by going to Ito's Japanese Steakhouse for uh, a wonderful meal. And when I was growing up, I used to love it when they would do like the fire displays and the volcanoes. The volcanoes was legit. And when I got home after one time, I said, you know what? If it was good in the Hibachi Steakhouse, it's going to be even better on my parents' bathroom counter. So I took a bottle of rubbing alcohol. They know about this now. And uh, a bottle of rubbing alcohol, and I put it over the counter, took the matches out, lit the counter on fire, whoosh. And apparently, I let the fire burn a little bit too long, and there was a, a hole, a burn stain on the counter, and that feeling just hit. This is the day I die. <laughs> My parents got home, and they asked me about the counter, and I was like, oh, the counter. Uh, what, hap what happened to the, the counter? <laughs> so did you burn this? Burn? Like, why would I? <laughs> Who burns the bathroom counter? <laughs> Who does that? And my mother, in, for whatever reason, although she is a, was a very prestigious judge for decades, she was fooled that day because she believed my, uh, my version of what happened. And they believed me, and someone else took the fall for me burning the counter. You would think that I would feel great, but I actually just felt so much guilt. It was just like hovering over my head, and uh, I couldn't sleep for days, and I finally just confessed and told them. I confessed when my father wasn't around. I told my mother first, and... Uh, <laughs> I let her break, break the bad news. And, uh, but that guilt was something that just plagued my life, and I, I just never felt free, even in my own home. Now, as I've come to learn who Jesus is and what the gospel means, a lot of my relationship with God was, was kind of like that period of time where my parents didn't know what I had done. And I, even though I heard that I was a child of God, I still kind of felt like there was something that separated me from God, that there was this thing that I had done, and there was all these ways I was falling short, and it, the gospel really wasn't transforming my life or making me feel free because I just felt so much guilt in my life. Now, when you're allowing God's messages and God's words to transform your life, it takes time to undo and de-interlace a lot of these deeply held beliefs that we have and the ways that we have been formed improperly that now shape everything about us. A couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that the path of discipleship of following Jesus is not just learning new information. It is learning. It is also unlearning a lot of negative things that are not true about God, and it's in relearning and putting Jesus' words into practice. This period of curiosity for me took years and years for me to think about how does the gospel truly transform my life so I'm not operating with this sense of guilt all the time. And then from there to valuing where I started to see that it was not because of what I had done, but truly letting God's wash, words wash over me but because of his great mercy, I started to finally have to disbelieve that, God, you are better than my imagination of you is. I have an imagination of you, God. It's basically you that's like a better version of me. And my deepest suspicion of God was that he could never truly love me and forgive me and love me for who I was, but that I would always have to earn it for him. As I started to move from curiosity and reading books and having conversations to valuing and to, to put these things into practice in my life, the gospel started to become real for me, uh, and it really changed my life to where um, uh, I would truly celebrate grace. Now, I started to move just from me internally to the way I started to deal with people, and this is when you start to prioritize how the gospel not just affects you on Sunday morning, but in every single interaction that you have in your life. For me, it was not just in the way that I saw God vertically, but in the way I treated people horizontally. All of us have a group of people in your mind that don't deserve grace. 
All of us. You all have a group of people in your mind that whatever, for whatever reason, they don't deserve grace. And until you are willing to extend grace to those people who you don't think deserve grace, you don't even know what grace is. Until grace becomes so real to you that you know that it's not because of you, but because of God who is rich in mercy, rich in grace, who pours that out on people who do not deserve it, until we can get to that level where we are prioritizing it and not just ourselves vertically, but treating different people horizontally better, realizing that there's a piece of everybody that has a, a hope and a chance of redemption. Nobody is discardable. I saw this in the way that my own Twitter feed operated. Um, I would be roasting cats on Twitter like, oh, for real? I got something for you. Um, and my, my goal was to chop people down with my words because I just felt like these people were beneath me. Because of one reason or another, these people, like, they were just uninformed and they were just stupid. They would just say harmful things. And it was my job to put them in their place. So I was never gentle with anybody because I didn't feel like they deserved gentleness. What's underneath that is that I didn't believe that God was gentle with me. As the gospel moves from becoming something that is intellectual to something that is now taking root in your life, it will affect the way you treat everybody. The reason we say that forgiveness is a good thing, not just because the Bible commands us to do it, but do you know what, for, like, what forgiving someone would do to your spiritual journey? Do you know what you would feel and experience if you were to look someone in the eye who had wronged you? And I'm not saying give them a license to continue to hurt you. If you were to truly, from the depths of your soul and your heart, through the grace of God, offer this person forgiveness and watch them crumble in, re in, in receiving the true forgiveness that you offer them, that would change your life. In doing this and prioritizing this and putting God's words into practice over years and letting it prioritize itself so that it's now hitting everything about you, that's going to be transformation in your life that leads you not just to an intellectual ascent of what grace is, but this is now something that's going to transform your life and give you real freedom. In doing that, you'll be able to celebrate the grace of God that has forgiven you like that. And this now moves from prioritizing to owning to where every single thing about us is now um, centered and informed around the gospel, where it informs everything you do, where you want to say something and you hold your tongue, where you want to be unforgiving and you still offer forgiveness, where you want to think about yourself and spend on yourself and you are generous now in every single thing about you where the gospel is starting to take root. And Jesus says, if we continue in his words, where it moves from just awareness of what it is to putting it into practice, to prioritizing it, to owning it, letting it shape everything about you, that's going to bring you freedom. Not just reading more books, although books are good, but putting these words into practice in such a way that it transforms our lives and gives us freedom. Now, uh, how do I want us to respond to this? Um, I don't want you just to hear what we're saying today and to go out and say, oh, that was a nice message. I, I want you to think about how the gospel makes sense and fits into your life. What about you is just understanding and hearing these words intellectually, but you haven't really truly put it into practice where you're uh, making decisions and you're depending on Jesus' words in such a way that you are in the wheelbarrow of faith. I want you to be thinking about what are some things you can be doing this week to depend on Jesus' words more than you ever have in your life. Now, for some of you guys, you're brand new, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to check the box on the connection card for more information about baptism. This is not you signing up for baptism. This is just putting you on the road to talk to a pastor about what it looks like for you to encounter a life-giving relationship with Jesus. There's no pressure in it. It's just a way for us to start the conversation. For others of you, I really want you to spend some time this week thinking about it and contemplating. Uh, some of you guys in the room this size, I know, 
There are decisions that you have to make. Right now, there's a fork in the road of some decisions that you need to make. And there's a, every bit of you that wants to go in a direction about you. And there's, a, there's another, another direction where God is calling you into some uncertain territories, some areas that you haven't been down before. And I want you to choose a scary route and follow Jesus. Amen. Choose a narrow road. Yeah. Choose a road that Jesus is inviting us down, whether it's with your finances, your relationships, or whatever it is in front of you right now. It is in depending on these God's words, putting them into practice that you and I will experience freedom. We will not experience freedom sitting on the sidelines, waiting for everything to be crystal clear. Jesus calls us to get into the wheelbarrow. Let me pray for us. Father, there's so many different things about me that doesn't want to get into the wheelbarrow. Uh, I would love to have control over my life. I would love to be able to tell where I'm going. I would love to be able to predict and to know everything that is about to happen in front of me. But Lord, I know that that won't bring me freedom and transformation. So I pray for the courage to move in the direction of following you wherever that is. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to experience true freedom, depending on you, continuing in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.